Hi, welcome to the Grace Life Podcast. In churches, the Bible is taught as truth and as a guide for life. Matter of fact, much of the time, this Word of God is revered as flawless and perfect. But we may ask ourselves, how can that be true, given what we've learned and discovered about this world? Questions come to mind like, hasn't the Bible been refuted by science? Is the Bible supported by anything in history? And how can it be God's Word if sinful men wrote it? As believers, we must be able to trust God's Word, if that's what it is. This series is about answering the tough questions so that we can find out, is it possible to have faith in God without checking our brains at the door? All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? So good to see you. So glad to worship with you, especially if you're a guest. So glad to have you with us for the first time. Hey, before we get into the message, I want to highlight what is coming up one week from today. One week from today, we will be kicking off our week of prayer and fasting. Uh, We do this twice every year, every January and every August. It's a a great time for us to reset and uh, draw closer to God. So I want to give you a heads up for those of you that maybe are new to Grace Life. We've got a whole page on our website or app you can go to and either hear former messages or uh, read some articles, find out why do we do this? What is it all about? And uh, answer some of the practical questions as well. Uh, but even equally important, maybe more important, depending on where you are in your journey, is, is you can take this week to talk to God about what do you want to see God do in your life? Because we're going to take a week and really pray that God will move. So I just want to encourage you to, to do that. As Anyway, it's all good. Uh, anyway, we'll be starting that next week. All right, so we are in a series, if you were here for the first time today, today is part four of a series we've been doing, and don't worry if you've missed any of it. It's on the uh, website or on our app. You can catch anything that you've missed. And this series is simply called The Bible. We're just looking at some of those challenges that maybe you've heard or you've thought over the years or you've seen in a documentary that they challenge the validity of the Bible. How can I believe the Bible when I've heard so many of these other things that say it can't be true? And so if you were here for the first two parts, uh, we looked at the uh, real issue is, has science refuted the Bible? Has science disproven the existence of God? And we arrived at a pretty solid no. And uh, then we went in part three last week, we looked at the idea has the historical record supported what we read about in Scripture, and we came up with the answer of yes. Now look, if you're here for the first time and you heard what I just said, or if you're a skeptic in any way, you're going to be saying, well, of course I'd expect a pastor to say no to that and yes to that. But I need to remind you or let you know to go back and watch those. It wasn't just a pastor saying that. For the science stuff, we interviewed a scientist. We've been doing research for over a year. What we did for the last three weeks is give you real research-based, academically intelligent and honest answers to those challenges. So again, if you have missed them, I'm not going to do them all again. I can't do them all today. Today, where we're going to pick up is with the last really big challenge to the Bible. Once you set aside some of the science things and the history things, there is still one more, yeah, but. And, and people say, well, this is it. Matter of fact, for some people, this is the first one. Some people didn't really care too much about science class or history class, so they're not real in tune with those objections. They're stuck on this one right here, and that is that how can we believe this to be from God when it was written by men, right? I mean, look, I'm going to show you a verse that would just make our whole life easier if this verse applied to a little bit more. It's uh, about Moses. Check this out here. Exodus 32, Moses was up on Mount Sinai talking to God. It says, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. 
What we're talking about here are the Ten Commandments inscribed on these two tablets. And it says these tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, come on, my job would be so much easier and most of your lives would be so much easier if that applied to everything in the whole Bible. Unfortunately, it only applied to those two tablets and Moses actually broke those. And so everything else is written by God, allegedly, through the hands of men. And so today we're looking at that final objection. How can I believe this? Especially some, I mean, there, there are some serious demands on my life expectations in here. But if it was written by men, I don't know if I'm going to agree with everything that's in here. So uh, just to lay our groundwork as we begin today, in case you're new to Scripture, you're new to following God, let me just show you two things the Bible says about itself so you understand kind of where this idea comes from. The first one is out of 2 Timothy that says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And I'm going to stop at that point. All Scripture is breathed out by God because the phrase for us in English, breathed out by God, is actually one Greek word, only one word in the Greek language. And here's what's really important about this word. It's used one time in all of history. It was never used before this moment. It was never used after this moment. In all of the Greek writings that we have, all of the New Testament, as well as any other Greek writing back in the day when Greek was the language, no one ever used this word again. That explains how special the concept is that it is from God. It is God-breathed, meaning it is his being that is communicated. And we sometimes would misunderstand that if we think in English because we think something is breathed out. We think of like me breathing out, out comes carbon dioxide. Who cares? I don't like carbon dioxide anyway. Too much of it kills me, right? That's kind of the way that goes. So I want to get rid of that. And Jimmy stays here. All of the dark chocolate loving Jimmy is still here. None of it left when I breathed out. And so we sometimes don't understand what was meant by this Greek word. What was meant by this Greek word was it's God. God is himself communicating this. When you read the scriptures, you are reading the nature and the essence of God. It is his being, not just carbon dioxide that came out. It's, it's a very important concept, which is why the word was never used before and never after. Second Peter, another example, says, look, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So look, we've got these two big concepts, and I, there are more, but I won't go into them. All Scripture is actually God's being. It's breathed out from Him. And men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the claim the Bible makes about itself, that we can trust it to be God's Word because even when men were involved, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, well, what are you going to do with that? Because, you know, there are some incredibly common objections. I think some of you have heard these. I'm, I'm going to give you just a few and, and do my best to answer them. The first objection we hear is what we kind of already talked about is, wait a minute, sinful men wrote it. Men who were imperfect. How in the world can an imperfect person write down perfect stuff, a revelation of God? How can the Holy Spirit work so perfectly through sinful people? Well, let me show you something that Peter said about this. Uh, this was shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and things were not going well. Matter of fact, some people were like, oh my gosh, Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. He got killed. And now some of you are telling me he was raised again and he's gone off to heaven. I don't know if I can really believe that story. And, and well, this isn't right. And he was betrayed by one of his closest. It seems like everything is just wrong, right? That was the situation for some of them. And so what Peter is doing at this moment is he stands up and he says, hey, chill out. Yeah, it looks wrong, 
But we were told this was going to happen over a thousand years ago in Scripture. And, and this is just for free. It, when your life looks like everything is wrong and everything is totally messed up, we need to take Peter's words and go to this and just hold on to it. But let me show you why he said we should hold on to it. He says, brothers, well, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. So he made his point. If it's in Scripture, it's got to be true. It's got to come true. The Scriptures had to be filled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand over a thousand years ago, actually, by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So wait a minute. Peter is saying, by the way, one of the disciples who was with Jesus saying, look, this prophecy, what we're experiencing, the Holy Spirit told us a thousand years ago through the hand and mouth of David. It's recorded in two of our Psalms. Now, at this point, we kind of have to agree with Peter that the Holy Spirit spoke through David, or we have to figure out that David was the most amazing person ever to be able to prophesy a thousand years beforehand. I put more faith in the Holy Spirit than David being that amazing, right? Anybody with me? He was a murderer and an adulterer. And so when you start thinking about his amazingness, I'm going to go with the Holy Spirit. All right. But how about this? Jesus. I just love it as a pastor. Just say Jesus, and that kind of like should end the whole debate, right? What does Jesus think about God speaking through men? Well, he got into a debate. I'm going to read to you his answer in Matthew 22. It says, he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, and then he quotes Psalms. He acknowledges, and you don't need to worry about the rest of the verse. It was a debate he was having with somebody. And his, his answer was, wait a minute, when David through the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalms. How is it that David said such and such? And so he was making the very clear point as our Savior, as the Son of God, that I've witnessed my Father speaking through mankind. I'm not surprised by it. Why are you surprised by it? So we've got the disciples saying we're good with this. We've got Jesus saying we're good with it. We should all just be able to go to lunch. But there are some other objections you hear, and even if you're good, I want to get you prepared to be able to talk to some people. The second common objection we hear to this being inspired by God is it's not inspired by God at all. It's inspired by other cultures. Matter of fact, our stories from the Old Testament seem to match and be copies of other religions and other cultures that existed in the world at that time. And the people that tell you that have simply not done their homework. And I, I can say that. And you can give them my address. I'm just kidding. Don't give them my address. But they have not done their homework. Because here's what they're trying to, to claim. They say, well, you know, you've got this story of creation. And you've got the story of a flood. And every other religion has a story of creation and a story of a flood. And, and there's just all these similarities. The only similarity is that everybody in history is asked, how did we get here and where did we come from? And, and the other religions, in their attempt to answer it, they said things like there were many gods and the gods would fight with each other and the god that won would be the one in charge and that god would rule over the other lesser gods. The other religions came up with the idea that these gods came out of what existed because that's the way things have to work. Gods were coming from the material being of the universe. The other religions said that these gods were not immortal. The other religions said that our world was made out of this mud and this chaos after the gods had a fight together and so forth. And if you have ever read the beginning of Genesis, you know that what Moses wrote down was absolutely the most ludicrous out-of-this-world idea that had no similarity with any other religion. And the first one was this. There was one God. He didn't fight with other gods. He, he didn't win, lose. Well, he won. He didn't lose anything. He's won everything ever. He's never had to fight with another God because he alone is God. He's the creator God. And he is the single God. 
It was a crazy idea. No one had ever believed monotheism. That's the word for that one guy. Everything was polytheistic. You know, you got a sun God, you got a moon God, you got a rain God. This idea that there is one God who is separate from creation, he didn't come out of it. And more importantly, the one thing that was just impossible to believe at the time was that that God supernaturally created everything out of nothing. That was not a copy of any other religious idea because no human could come up with the idea that everything we have today came out of nothing at that time. Matter of fact, now that we look at the scientific evidence, as we did earlier, that agrees there seems to be this point of everything coming out of nothing, we still struggle with it, and we actually can observe it scientifically. There is no way, and nor did any culture ever suggest such a thing. As for the flood account, I'm just going to say this. It seems to me we should have more faith in our Bible that every other culture agrees that at some point the known world was wiped out by a flood should make that story a little bit more believable to us. And, and let's look at what probably, though, I think is the, the biggest objection. It's actually the question that I get more than any other, and that is how about the books that made it into the Bible and the ones that didn't? So how can we trust this Bible, today's Bible, the one that you pick up in a Christian bookstore or order on Amazon, how can we trust this one to be God's word when some stuff was included because men thought so and some stuff was left out because men thought so? And that's really hard to put that much trust in men. Come on, anybody ever heard that one? Right? Okay, so let's talk about this. When they talk about things being left out of your Bible, they're really talking about two groups. Everything falls into one of two groups. And the first group are, are these things called the lost gospels, these stories of Jesus uh, that didn't get put in and, and somebody is upset with them getting left out. Anybody ever heard of the lost gospels? You, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Here's the first thing you need to know about the lost gospels. They were never lost, ever. We didn't just discover them in a cave somewhere. We've known exactly where they were ever since they were written and they were uh, discounted and declared heresy at that point in time. They weren't lost. And in a minute, I'll get back to why we, we use that term and somebody brings that up. But let me just give you a little bit of nerd history here to help you out if you get into a debate or if you're just wanting to actually understand what happened. Okay, here's the deal. The lost gospels were denounced because they were not even written until one to 200 years after the time of Jesus. Our gospels were written by either the apostles or a direct disciple or observer of the actions of Jesus or a disciple of one of the apostles. It was our gospels that we have in our Bible were written by people who went to their death refusing to recount anything that they wrote down. Are you guys with me? And so one to 200 years later, people, not, no, no, they weren't discovering copies. They were writing new stories about Jesus by somebody who clearly wasn't there 200 years before. And you say, well, why, Jimmy? That doesn't make much sense. Well, just like today we have other religions or distortions of religions, we have things like New Age or Scientology, or, and the list could go on forever. They had the same problem 2,000 years ago. And there was a very famous one at the time called Gnosticism, and I'll really do my best not to bore you here. I'm just going to give you a snapshot. Uh, they didn't write about repentance and salvation because they didn't believe that was the issue. The issue for them was enlightenment of the soul. And so Jesus in their writings was not a savior, but Jesus was someone to connect with on a spiritual level. Uh, they believed that there was a greater hidden God and a revealed lesser God that they equated with our God, the Father in the Bible, which is totally against the nature that we have. And so they simply figured out people were dying for Jesus. People were writing about Jesus. People were worshiping Jesus. And if they could make Jesus one of their characters, that th their faith would be able to be spread. 
But Gnosticism was denounced as a heresy. These were people who had left the faith and started following other weird ways, and so they simply began creating these writings. As soon as these writings came out, uh, everybody who had been a, a child or a grandchild of the witnesses or discipled or were still in the faith were saying, wait a minute, none of this lines up with what we know to be true about Jesus. And who do you think you are 200 years later to say you're an eyewitness or you have some secret source of a story of Jesus 200 years ago? So the apostles, the church fathers, everybody at that point just said, this stuff isn't true. And for about 2,000 years, everybody knew these lost gospels were total garbage. The problem is some people have suddenly started going, whoa, what about the lost gospels? And the question is why? Well, the answer to that is because of some very popular movies and some popular books like the Da Vinci Code and so forth and some other examples. And uh, so I, I just want to give you a quote by this author, Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code, the one of the movies, because you guys go to the movies and you come back and go, my pastor didn't tell me that. I think I can't believe the Bible no more. So <laughs> let me help you out a little bit. I need you to know a little something about Dan Brown. This is a quote by him in an interview in 2009. He says, I was raised Episcopalian and I was very religious as a kid. Then in eighth or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang, but here it says God created heaven and earth and the animals in seven days, which is right. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys, don't ask that question. A light went off. And I said, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me. And I just gravitated away from religion. The real question I have for Christians who are wondering about the lost gospels is why do you think you're going to get good information about Jesus from somebody who has stopped following him? That is really the bigger issue on the table. And the reason we've done this series is so that hopefully more people asking the questions that he asked get better answers and we don't end up with more stuff being produced in the movies that's not true. All right, here's the second group of books uh, or second group uh, of things that people say have been left out of the Bible. What do I do about this? And uh, it's the Apocrypha. Now look, before I go any further, I know that many of you have a Catholic heritage and uh, I have a lot of uh, Catholic friends still today and I mean this with as much respect as I can and typically just because I don't want to uh, step on anybody's toes or uh, make you feel like I'm insulting your mother if she still goes to, to church there or, or whatever the story is, I avoid answering this question. But I've been asked this question so many times and I've been challenged so many times because of the way some people believe it. Many people believe that we left out scriptures that were sacred and so therefore that's a big issue. And, and so as we talk about this, I'm going to ask you to extend grace to me if you have a Catholic heritage because I'm simply trying to answer the question that everyone keeps asking me. Even this week, just this week, in the last seven days, uh, someone came to me and said, are you finally going to explain why the Apocrypha is in one church's Bible, but not in the other? And so look, I'm doing this out of uh, an effort to help you. Uh, please extend grace to me if you have a Catholic heritage, and I'm going to do this as gracefully as I can. Everybody good with that? All right, so here we go. Uh, in my effort as well, not to bore you, but I am going to take you on a real quick history trip. Everybody with me, imagine we're at about 400 years before the time of Jesus. The Hebrew Old Testament is complete as we know it today. It's the same thing that we have today. There's been a little debate of which book goes first and second. That's okay. The order is not nearly as important as the fact that it was finished. It's complete. It's what we have. Okay, let's go forward another hundred years. Now we're about 300 years before the time of Jesus. I'm sure many of you remember the name, somebody like Alexander the Great. He's conquered the known world. As a result, the known world now speaks Greek, even as far away as Egypt. Fast forward another hundred years. An Egyptian king 
who appeared to be a little full of himself. That part's alleged, but the fact is he really existed. His name was Ptolemy II, and we're in the uh, 200s BC now. And uh, now that the whole world is speaking Greek, including Egypt, he wants to create a great library. So great, it is alleged that he wanted to collect every book and have it translated into Greek and put it in his library. So he did have the Old Testament scriptures. He commissioned them to be translated into Greek, and so he brought these 72 scholars. That's where we get the name for this translation. It's called the Septuagint, which stands for the 70. Uh, And so these 72 scholars come. They translate the Old Testament as we know it today into Greek. And while they were at it, because he was trying to collect every book, they included for him some influential writings of the day that were not part of the Old Testament Scripture and were not considered equal to the Old Testament Scripture. And it would be the same today as if you walk into a church and there's a, a bookstore or some recommended readings. And so, look, uh, today, very commonly for uh, you to see a bookstore in a church, it's got writings by Rick Warren, but we would never say that Rick Warren's writings are scripture. And many of us have had the same experience where we're like, oh, I'm so glad you're following Jesus now. Let me help you. The first thing you need to do is read your Bible. But hey, if it's okay with you, I'm going to buy a book for you. Because when I started following Jesus, there was this other book. It's The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, and it just changed my life. And I'm going to tell you, if you read the Bible and you read Rick Warren's book, you're just going to be... How many of you have ever done that or had someone do that to you? Kind of thing. Recommend a book that changed their life. And so these Hebrew scholars included what were considered some influential writings of the time. There were a few things in it that were questionable, so they didn't call it equal to Scripture. So now we have a Greek version that includes these extra books. Along comes Jesus. Jesus lived, he taught, he was crucified, he was raised again, and right before he left for heaven, he told his disciples, take my message to the ends of the earth. And in taking his message to the ends of the earth, it meant leaving Israel. And the minute you left Israel, everyone else spoke Greek. And so what did they do? Well, two important things. First of all, as they began to write their own writings that became our New Testament, they did so in Greek. But second of all, when they needed to refer to the Old Testament, they used that translation that was already in Greek, that it did have those extra writings in it. So we get to the point of about 400 AD. Now we're about 400 years after Jesus. Everybody still with me? Come on, you still there? Right, good, tune back in. And uh, about 400 years after the time of Jesus, what has happened is we've got scrolls everywhere. Here are some scrolls, there are some scrolls everywhere, scroll, scroll. Anyway, okay, so you get the idea. And so somebody says, look, we, we kind of need this a little bit easier to keep up with. And so can we get all of this put together? And so at this point, Latin has become the main language of the known world. And so a guy named Jerome becomes the leader of translating all of what is considered scripture into this Latin version. It's got a name called the Vulgate, if you ever want to know about that. When he did this, he included those extra writings once again because uh, he was encouraged by some of his mentors. He knew it was not a part of scripture, and so he made it very clear with disclaimers. If you go back to his original version, it says, look, these are extra writings. They are not equal to the rest of Scripture. Matter of fact, he's the one that came up with the term Apocrypha because he wanted to make sure everybody understood. This is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant from Hebrew. This is the New Testament from the disciples and the, the first century, the people who followed Jesus. And then we've got the other stuff. We're going to call it the Apocrypha. So he made it very clear this is not equal in Scripture as the sacred words of God. They're good writings, but they're not equal. And if we can take one more trip in time, one more, we're going to go forward to about 1,500, over 1,000 years beyond that. A Catholic priest has been reading Scripture. The Catholic priest's name is Martin Luther, and he begins to figure out that some of the things 
in the extra writings contradict things in the scripture. And he says, we need to do something about that. He also was a little upset about or frustrated with some of the practices of the day. And he said, we need to do something about that. And so he said, look, we need to make some changes. And unfortunately, those changes were not received by everybody. Or unfortunately, it doesn't matter how you just, unfortunate because it caused a division is what I meant by that. And so the division ended up being the Protestant Reformation. It's important for you to understand that that was a Catholic divide. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest in the Catholic Church, and, and it turned into what you and I have today with evangelical or Protestant churches. And again, grace, everybody, grace, right? And so what happened at that point, once they could not come to an agreement on some changes, Martin Luther had to go his own way, and that is what we have today. As he went his own way in establishing these types of churches, he said, we're not going to include those writings because they contradict what Scripture says here. In those additional writings is the idea, maybe you've heard of purgatory, the idea that after you're dead, someone can pray for your salvation and your eternal future can actually change after you're dead. It's contradicted by the New Testament. Also in some of those writings, the idea that your good deeds erase your bad deeds, which is, stands in complete contradiction that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And Martin Luther was the first to point those out and say, we got to make some changes here. And so when he said, we've got to go this way because we can't get reform, he said, we're not going to keep these extra writings in. And now this is the important point because this is the first time in history at the Council of Trent in the 1500s that the Catholic Church says, okay, we are going to officially adopt this Latin translation from the 400s as our Bible. It included the Apocrypha. And so, look, that's how it came to be. Uh, people have this idea that we kicked stuff out. We never kicked stuff out. It was agreed upon until the 1500s that these extra writings were good but not equal to Scripture. So the burden actually might be on someone else to explain why they believe the Apocrypha is inspired. It's not on me to do that. What's on me is to let you know that what's in your Bible is agreed upon as inspired and has been since shortly after the time of Jesus. Okay, so does that answer that? And by the way, let me just explain one more thing if we're going to be a nerd moment here because some of us just have a really wrong idea of how our Bible came to be. Many of us believe that there was some second century or third century smoky room, you know, and you got a bunch of men hanging out in the room and some of them are friends and they're over in this corner and some of them are friends and they're over in that corner and this corner doesn't like that corner and, and it's all political and it's all a big debate and some guy over here is trying to get his favorite writing by his great, great uncle in the book and over here somebody's trying to get something in there and they don't like his great, great uncle and so there's all this lobbying and political fighting and a lot of us kind of have the idea that it's like Washington DC right now between the Republicans and the Democrats and it's all just about my side or your side and that was your joke for the day. But thank God that is not how our Bible came to be. Here's what you need to know. That room never existed. That meeting never happened. Whatever stories you've heard, that's not how it went down. So let me tell you how it went down. Our Old Testament was finished, complete, and established 400 years before the time of Jesus. Jesus came along, he quoted it, he taught it, he revered it as the word of the Father, and he taught everyone else to do the same. He never said that anything was left out. He never said anything needed to be included. He never said there was any error that needed to be corrected. Matter of fact, he repeatedly said things to the contrary, that scripture has to be fulfilled. Not one dot, not one iota will be removed. Every word of it will be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So look, the Old Testament, if you can trust Jesus as your Savior, you can trust the Old Testament as the Word of God. The New Testament is where we had to start to say, wait a minute, does anybody remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Wouldn't it be cool if other people could read that? 
And what if we could write down the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and, and other people could read that for centuries to come? So the eyewitnesses, the apostles, or the disciples of those eyewitnesses began to write those down. The apostles began to refer to what the other apostles wrote as holy scriptures. And, and so shortly within time of the first and second century, there was grand agreement among the followers, the wit eyewitnesses, and the children of the eyewitnesses to what made this, the scriptures and what didn't. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, everybody knows Kent, right? Pastor Kent here? Everybody knows Kent? And everybody loves Kent. And we all think that Kent is like at Jesus' right hand. Come on, everybody's with me on that, right? And I know that y'all love and trust Kent more than you do me, but it's okay. I don't cry too terribly much over that. And so I want you to imagine if you read a story on Facebook, Tom, let's say Tom here put out a story on Facebook and said, you won't believe this amazing thing that happened at my house last night. And so the next day you come up and say, hey, Kent, did you see that post of what happened at Tom's house? And Kent says, that didn't happen. I was there. What y'all gonna do at that point? Y'all gonna believe Kent or Tom? Come on, I mean, I'm sorry, Tom, but everybody's gonna believe Kent. And at that point, you're going to go tell Facebook to flag that post. You want everybody to know that Tom is spreading lies. And that is how the agreement for the Bible came out. As these Gnostic writings, the lost gospels, and other things were produced, the people who were actually there, the children of the people who were there, who heard the stories from their parents, the eyewitnesses, the disciples all said, that's not true. That doesn't line up. We're not, we're not having that one. But this one, Paul wrote it. I know Paul. I heard his story. I was with Paul on the road to Damascus. I, I know what happened right there. I was with James. By the way, James, he is the half-brother of Jesus. We can believe what James wrote. And so there was a majority agreement of this is what's correct by the people who were there to see it and their disciples. Do you guys understand? So very shortly after the time of Jesus, within just a few hundred years, there was complete agreement on what, or virtually complete agreement on what we have here today. I have to say virtually because there's always an attack against Scripture. So, all right, there you go. I've answered the majority of uh, the objections to how the Bible can be inspired by God. How about before we go, I give you one evidence for the Bible being inspired by God. Anybody want that one? Evidence for inspiration? Look, I could do like a two or three hour talk on evidence for inspiration, and I've got about two minutes. So here we go. This is all I'm gonna give you. And uh, you can go do more research if you want. But we're gonna look at something uh, known as the prophecies of Jesus. Turns out that Jesus, when he came to earth, fulfilled over 300 individual prophecies written from anywhere between 400 to over 1,000 years before he came. The prophecies are so detailed that the odds of anyone fulfilling 300 of them, well, we'll actually get to the math. You just hold that thought. But it, it was it's just so amazing that up until just uh, less than 100 years ago, the rebuttal and the answer to how in the world did one man fulfill these 300 scriptures? They didn't disagree that he fulfilled them. It's obvious that he did. So the people who wanted to argue the case that the Bible can't be trusted, they had one thing they hung their hat on. And that was that the scriptures were written after Jesus and everybody just lied about when they wrote them. That's how he fulfilled scripture so perfectly. Well, the problem is in the 1960s, as we referred to last week, we had the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here is what's awesome for us and bad for people trying to say they wrote the Bible later. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the actual scrolls, the actual parchment that exists in our hands today in the right museums, not in my hands, obviously, they date 200 years before the time of Jesus. So the only way when you have something that is physically 200 years older than Jesus, and you're trying to say it was written after Jesus, is you have to have a time machine. I don't know about you, but I've got more faith in Jesus than time travel. So there you go. All right, 
Um, but uh, here's, here's the inspiration. So in the 1950s, a mathematician, a department chair of mathematics at Pasadena City College by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks, if anybody wants to go and check this out. But he and his students uh, began to do a project on what is the mathematical possibility of Jesus fulfilling these 300 prophecies. So to give you an idea of how this kind of went down, it was Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, out of the known world at the time and the population, what are the odds of somebody being born in Bethlehem as opposed to everywhere else? Then there's another prophecy that he would have someone who foreshadows him, someone who goes before him preaching that he's the Messiah. So now we've got to have a man born in Bethlehem who has somebody going before him saying, this is the man, follow him, he's the Messiah. That was John the Baptist. And then there's another prophecy that says he'll be betrayed by one of his closest friends. So now we've got to have a man who's born in Bethlehem, has somebody going before him like John the Baptist preaching that he is the Messiah, and he's got to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, uh, who is Judas. And then we have the prophecy that says that that person will betray him for exactly 30 pieces of silver a thousand years before it happened. Who wants to guess how, many, how much money uh, uh, Judas got for this? Exactly 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that amazing? And so now they did the math on what would it take for one man born in Bethlehem to have somebody going before him preaching that he's the Messiah who is betrayed by his closest friend for exactly 30 pieces of silver. Okay, 300 of those. Are you guys with me? 300 of those. And Dr. Stoner and his team stopped at eight because they discovered that the odds of Jesus fulfilling those prophecies just Eight of them to that detail is one in 100 quadrillion. Now, I don't know if you can imagine that number, but I checked my bank account this, number, this morning, and I have no relevance for 100 quadrillion. I, I just, it's not there. I don't understand it. I can't imagine what it would be like. So I'm going to give you the picture. The picture is if you took the state of Texas and you covered the surface of the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. And then, blindfolded, dangling from a helicopter, you reached down and you picked out the one that had the super magic mark on it. That is the probability of Jesus as a normal human fulfilling over 300 of these prophecies to that detail. At some point, you just have to say, I think God is behind this. So look, that's where we are. At this point in the series, let me tell you what we've done and where we stand. At this point in the series, we have discovered that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God with no need for error or change. At this point, we've seen that the New Testament was affirmed by the other apostles of the day and was accepted by the first century Jews that they set together and, and were in agreement. At this point, we've looked at every legitimate question raised by science, and with the help of a retired chief science officer, we answered those questions with academic integrity. We've looked at what the historical record says. And at this point, we have a choice. And that is that we either acknowledge our Bible as the inspired word of God, as his revelation of himself to us, and his expectation for us or we reject that. It's the only answer. Acknowledge or reject. At this point, I know that someone either watching online or just by numbers, somebody in this room is still saying, yeah, but, wait a minute, Jimmy, you, you haven't proven 
beyond a shadow of a doubt. You haven't proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I'm here to say, you're right. Matter of fact, for pastors, we all have a rather disappointing moment at the beginning of theology class. Because as we go off to Bible college or seminary and we take our first theology class, we, we think like this class is like the secret magic class. This is where they teach you everything that's true about God in the Bible that the rest of the world doesn't tell you. And through this amazing theology class, you are then going to go out and preach a sermon that every atheist on planet earth is going to bow down and say, Jesus is king and, and you're going to be praised in heaven. But your professor will begin theology class with saying, before we go any further, you need to know there are two things that can never be proven. That God exists and he's revealed himself in his word. Can't be proven. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you went to your doctor two days ago. Just imagine with me, two days ago, your doctor looked at you, showed you a scan of your body, and you've got cancer to every single cell. You've got more cancer than any human has ever had, and it is so advanced that the doctor looks at you and says, I don't think you will live to hear me finish my sentence. And you go home and you pray, and God heals your body. And you go to the doctor tomorrow. The only thing you can prove is that you don't have cancer. You can't prove how the cancer went away. You'll never be able to prove that God exists. You'll never be able to prove that he's revealed himself in his word. And I'm going to leave you with one scripture because that's why the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe, not be proven, must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, if you want proof, you're still up here. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, as far as your mind goes, you have been given a legitimate, academically honest answer to every legitimate challenge to the scriptures. The issue is no longer up here. The issue is here. And as a dad, I understand the issue that we face right now because it just said that those who seek him will be rewarded. You see, everybody comes to God in one of two groups. They either come seeking or they come trying to figure out how to get rid of him. Sometimes because they just don't like what's in here and they don't want to live by it. But my kids sometimes will say, why, daddy? But they do it in two different groups. Come on, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There's the time where you ask them to do something or you say something, and they go, why, daddy? And they have a sincere heart to understand. And then there are those times you ask them to do something they don't want to do, and they go, why, daddy? So the real question is, where is your heart? At this point in the series, that's the question every one of us has to answer because your mind's been given enough to be able to believe this. But your heart may still be challenging. And it, look, if you want me to give you undeniable proof that makes every atheist bow his knee, can I just remind you, Jesus had one of his 12 disagree and turn against him. Judas. And think about this. Judas had more proof than I believe any human ever could. Judas walked beside Jesus for three years. Judas ate meals with Jesus. At the moment where he was 
discovering he would be the one to betray him. Jesus said, it's the one who dips his hand in the dish with me. I'm telling you, like we fist bump, Judas touched Jesus. Touched Jesus. Just days, literal days before Judas got 30 silver coins to betray Jesus, he stood there and watched Jesus say, Lazarus, come out, and watched a dead man walk. How much more proof can you get? And yet he betrayed Jesus. Why? Not because of the proof. The Bible tells us why. His heart. Something in his heart. So the only question that's left for us at this point in the series, <laughs> your mind's been given more than enough. You've been pointed in the direction to read more, research more, if you need more. But at this point, the real question you have to ask is, where's your heart? Are you either going to acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God and his revelation to us, or reject it. And I'm going to tell you why so many of us struggle, struggle to acknowledge. It's because acknowledgement requires a response. If you acknowledge, it requires a response. You're going to have to do something with this if this is the Bible. To acknowledge it requires a response. And that's where we're going to close the series out next week with, well, what do we do now I want to encourage you to come back for that. Let me pray for you right now. God, we thank you. We thank you that we can know who you are because of your word. Nature tells us you're there, but you tell us who you are. And in that, we thank you that you are a just God, a merciful God, a loving God, a grace-filled God, and the list goes on. God, we are here and we are blessed because of you. It's your word that we sang earlier that tells us if you're for us, who can be against us? Because you alone reign supreme above everything and everyone. So God, I pray right now for the hearts of everyone watching, either in this room or wherever, that hard hearts will be softened. And that we will be people who come to you saying, why, Daddy? Help me understand. I want to know you. I want to earnestly seek you. Reward me with a revelation of who you are. I'm going to close by talking to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. It could be because you've never heard the truth that Jesus came and he died on the cross for you, paying for your sins. And by expressing faith in him as Lord and Savior, you're forgiven and have eternal life. If you've never heard that, it's the greatest thing that God did to display his love for us, that he didn't leave creation broken and sinful. And it's the greatest gift of God. Maybe you have yet to make Jesus your king because some of these objections that you've heard and you weren't sure you could trust the Bible. Whatever your reason, today if you've never made Jesus your king, you are truly missing out on an incredible relationship with a God who loved you so much. You're missing out on his plan for your life and you're missing out on the peace of knowing your eternal future. So I'd like to help you make that change. I'd like to help you have a conversation with him. 
and make him your king. If this is you, wherever you are, if you're kneeling in a living room, sitting here today, wherever, say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now, I want to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.